Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is our passage today. It's not real long. Um, I, I, it, I mean, my sermon was way longer. And I was like, this is super long. So I, I cut it way down, and I, I'm going to move half of it to next week. Um, so you're going to hear sort of, I'm going to stop somewhere, and, and I'm going to sort of hint at where else this goes. And we're going to go there next week. So now you like have to come back. And um, I may or may not podcast it just to keep you coming back. Um, so let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything that you were doing here. Thank you for your guidance with us. Thank you for your chastening us and opening us up and uh, the, the changes that are happening, um, the ways that we are coming into our own um, as it regards to um, the cross that we bear, as it comes to the church, as it regards to our faith individually and collectively and communally. Um, I ask that you would continue to guide us and lead us and, and show us um, where you are taking us, who you want us to be. May our, our sanctification become more obvious. May we daily become more and more like you. Um, may these times that we are together become more and more um, our reality, that we don't escape our lives to come here and do this thing, but rather this is a reflection of real life. Um, a time when even if it's just for a few hours, it is all completely 100% centered upon Jesus and the message of the cross. And may this translate into our everyday lives and may every moment of our lives become more and more a reflection of you, of the cross, of the life of Christ, of the teachings of Christ, the one whose name that we bear. Thank you. Speak through me this morning. Allow me to remember clearly the things that I've studied and allow this to... um, Hit us right where we need, um, where we need it. And uh, thank you. In your name, amen. All right. So I'm going to start right here in, uh, I call it 13A. There's two parts to it. I'm going to start with the first part, and then I'm going to open it up and get to the rest of it. Um, if you need a Bible, I mean, people aren't really using analog paper Bibles anymore, unless you're like, you know, you're buying vinyl, you're going to read real books. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, grab that, open it up, and... Uh, uh, Galatians chapter, chapter 5. So it starts here. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, um, I want to start off by opening up the word freedom because we have this idea, um, especially in, in America, about what freedom is and about what freedom means. Um, and oftentimes we just, we just take our, transplant our understanding of what freedom is, and we read the word freedom in a book that's translated from ancient first century Greek, and we just kind of, boom, it means the same thing, Right? Um, Paul's not talking about free market capitalism here. Um, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Um, that's not what he's talking about. The word that is used here uh, is this word, eleutheria. Everyone say, eleutheria. All right. So uh, there's, there's, it, if you were to take this word apart um, and do a little bit of what's called etymology, and, and you were to take the, the root words here, um, you're going to get two words. You're going to get the word, eleu, which means arriving, um, 
It's a journey, and you arrived at where you're supposed to be. And, and the second word uh, is the word eron. It's also it's where, in Greek, you would get the word eros, which has to do with um, love. Um, it's, in English, it's where we get our word erotic sort of, sort of thing. Uh, it means where one loves. And so, um, basically, you have arriving at where one loves. So, the, a, a, a working definition would be the fulfillment of one's love as an end of a journey. There was this... Um, journey that you are on, and you have grown into an understanding of what things actually mean, and you come to the understanding that it means love. And so, wrapped up in this word, it's not just here's how we tend to view it. It's just you're you're in a cage and it's open, and you're free, and you just do whatever you want, right? Um, that is not the idea that that Eleutheria is. Um, the word for freedom is not just. The cage is open, um, and now you have to make the choices that a prisoner who has been locked up for 20 years has to make. Do you, um, you can do whatever you want. What are you going to do? Um, the freedom that Paul is talking about is it sort of has this um, gradual awakening, this gradual understanding of, of exactly who you are, what you are here for, um, and, you're, and you're sort of opening up. And so this is more what it's like. There's this journey, and you've reached the top, and you realize and, and, and because you have mentally ascended this thing, because you, you understand, it's sort of this, oh, that's, that's what this is. Um, I, I actually, in my situation, I'm not enslaved by it. I'm actually free in it. That's why in the scriptures, you'll see messages um, in the scriptures oftentimes to people who are slaves, talking to them about their own freedom that they have and a choice that they can make. Um, on the inside to find joy, even in their position. And, 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 then, and then oftentimes, so there's actually a passage where Paul first, I think it's in, uh, oh man, I believe it might have been Ephesians. Uh, I totally forget right now, I'm being a bad pastor. Um, where he speaks to slaves, and then he speaks to women, and then he speaks to the men in the group. Um, and, which is fascinating because in early Greek, you would never, you would never do that in the Greco-Roman world. You would speak to the men first, um, and usually wouldn't even speak to the women or the slaves. Um, and so Paul has this, um, the, the general idea here is in whatever situation, you are not enslaved by that thing. You have a choice in that situation. It is this awakening, understand this freedom. And so um, sort of the, the question oftentimes people have with freedom is, um, you know, Paul writes this letter to these people and says, hey, these laws, these religious laws that you are living by, and, and let's not kid ourselves, most of us were raised with a giant pile of religious laws. You're a Christian, so you do this and you don't do this. And, uh, and, and there's, here's, a, here's a healthy list of things that you, don't, that you don't eat or drink or whatever. And here's a healthy list of things that you do. Um, and, and you look at it sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, and so I live by these laws, and I don't do that. Why? Well, because the Bible says not to. That is not at all the intention that, that Paul or anyone in the Scriptures that Jesus has for you to understand. There's this awakening. Um, that you're supposed to have. And, and so it's not just you're free from the religious law. Oh, does that mean I can do whatever I want? That is the response of somebody who is immature and has not understood what Jesus was here to do. Somebody who has not yet sort of grasped the gospel. If, if you are suddenly, if you were told, hey, by the way, there's no more laws. There's no more religious laws. Um, and you were to read that verse from Paul that says all things are permitted, but not all things are beneficial. Um, you, if you were to just read the first part, all things are permitted... You're, oh, I can just do whatever I want. That would actually reveal to you your heart, what's going on inside of you. Instead, Paul says this in verse 13, uh, if we read the whole thing together. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. So he says, you are free, but it's not just the doors open and you can do whatever you want. You've actually been freed to something. And, and there's this awakening that you should have where you understand what you are freed to and that there is a way to use this freedom. And so he sort of creates this binary, this choice. You have in your freedom the opportunity for the flesh or the, or the opportunity to serve one another through love. So there's this choice that must be made. One of them leads towards the kingdom of God and towards beauty, which is the part that I, I couldn't open up and, and talk about this week because I, I would run out of time. So we're going to talk about beauty hopefully next week. Um, through love, serve one another. This brings about beauty in the world. And then the other one, the opportunity for the flesh, there is a word that describes this, people who live by the flesh and you, and you act in accordance to bodily urges, whatever I want, I'm going to do, I'm going to take, I'm going to fulfill whatever desires that I have. Um, and the word that is used to describe this is not a word that, that our postmodern sort of generation in this world, or whatever is after post, post, postmodern, um, whatever, however they want, there's this word sin, which we don't like, which we don't like to talk about, do we? I mean, it's because it's, it, it carries all kinds of baggage from a lot of your fundamentalist upbringing, or, or maybe you've been damaged by hellfire brimstone proclamations about all these things and labeling all these things that, that about you that, that they would call sin. And you sort of think maybe, maybe it's, it's lost all its meaning and so we don't use that. Instead, we use other words to describe things. But I would argue there is a healthy way to understand this word. Incredibly healthy way. And that it's wrapped up in this passage here. And uh, if you understand the word sin, if you understand what sin is exactly, it will absolutely help guide you towards a holier life. And it's not a list of things that if you do these, you're in sin. If you don't do these, you're not in sin. It, that's not the intention at all of this word or this idea or this passage. So um, in the ancient times, um, the word for sin, um, it really had a specific meaning. It was sort of an archery phrase, and it meant missing the mark. Um, and, and so here's my rendition of that. Um, it's, it's basically the description of an archer, or somebody who has been given, like, like an archer, he's been given something and he doesn't know how to use it, right? Um, I think that's, a, that's an amazing description of what Paul is talking about here. Um, you have been given freedom. How are we going to use it? Do you even know how to use it? Have you spiritually matured and understood the gospel enough and taken it deep enough into your heart and mind and soul that you understand what to do with what you've been given, with the gospel? Because as I look around at modern evangelicalism today, what I see is a massive group of people who claim the gospel, but I don't think they really understand how to use it. And so this is sort of a description of that. Now, if I were to define, I mean, I myself wouldn't be great at defining this word, but I've, I've read tons of books that define it beautifully. One of the best um, is, uh, there's this guy, um, Cornelius Plantinga. He wrote, he wrote a book called Engaging God's World. It's, it's a great read. You should read it. Um, and... Uh, and he defines sin in this beautiful way. And I want to open this up. He says, sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. So we've got some big words and fancy words. So I want to open up uh, this phrase and help us define sin better. Um, first off, I want to start with shalom, the culpable disturbance of shalom. So what is shalom? Shalom is this ancient Hebrew word for peace, wholeness, health, blessings, um, Shalom is the harmony God intends for the world. Shalom is how God wants things to be. Shalom is, is peace with yourself, with your neighbor, with the earth, with God. When things are as they should be in a place, that place is at shalom. 
Um, it is the kingdom of God, which is at hand, which we can bring into where we are. We can bring the kingdom of heaven here. We can, our job is to set out to bring about the shalom and the peace of people with God and people with people. Um, and when things are as they should be, and things are being used uh, in, in, in a way that is centered on the heart of God and in harmony with what the divine intends for all of us, that is shalom. You've felt this way uh, after, maybe after, uh, I mean, every, the biggest times in my life I think that, that I have felt this is after the birth of each of my three children and I'm, and I'm holding them and nothing else matters. I'm in the room with my kids and my wife and a newborn baby and I'm, things are as they should be. Um, until the bill comes. <laughs> um, but for that moment, you know, shalom. And the, the bill is the, is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Um, and so let's, uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, disturbance, uh, the interruption of a settled and peaceful position. This is actually Webster's Dictionary um, definition of this. The interruption of a settled and peaceful disposition. Th- things are good, and then someone comes in and just disrupts all of that with whatever. Um, and I guess the idea here is that, is that things, I mean, honestly, things are not as they should be, are they? In, in our world, in our country, in our city, in your life, maybe even in this very morning, things are not as they should be. There is a way you picture things should be, and what you are experiencing is not lining up with that. Um, you could right now easily point to at least 20 different aspects of your life that are not as, as they should be, whether it's unhealth, unrest, fear, relational breakdown, estrangement, loneliness, discontentment, wanting more, um, sitting and waiting for the next thing instead of living where you are. Um, things are not as they should be. This is the disturbance. It's the opposite of shalom. Um, shalom is how things should be. Disturbance is when they are not. And so culpable, someone who is culpable is guilty. They're responsible. Um, they have some ownership of the whole thing. Um, culpable is any way that you have contributed to things, whether in your own life or in the life of others, becoming not as they are supposed to be. Any way that you have contributed in this. So, what can sin be? That is an incredibly wide thing to define. Um, sin could be not saying what needs to be said to make something right. Sin could be... Um, Lusting after what someone else has and ignoring the incredible blessing that you have. Because you should be, you, you have been given everything that you need and then some. And instead of being content and at peace with everything and the blessings that you have, you want more. You look at what someone else has or the illusion that they are projecting that they have. And these thoughts are the culpable disturbance of that shalom that you should be having. Um, ignoring the plight of someone who has a need that you can meet but you do not meet, taking part in a system that is oppressive or unloving in some way, um, not actively fighting against some evil that is within your grasp, in the realm of sort of your personal kingdom, if you will. Um, it's, uh, it can be what you spend your money on, how you spend your time, what you wear, what kinds of food you eat, how much you drink, how little you encourage, how, you, how, how much you speak your mind or how much you hold back from saying what needs to be said. There's not this really defined thing at the moment from where we are in this passage of, of 
what sin can be. Instead, it's just this wide open sort of, well, it could be from there to there, what's going on in your life. Um, and so Paul, and again, it, it's culpability. It's, it's the ways that you are contributing to all of this. And so Paul um, actually narrows down a bit of the definition here. Um, in other passages, Romans twelve eighteen, he says, insofar as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. This is the best description of the culpability that we have. Um, if something is not as it should be, and there is anything that you can do to make it right, whatever part you play, whatever hand you have in this discussion, if you do not do it, you are taking part, you are culpable in the disturbance of that. It could be a choice even between two articles of clothing, a very cheap shirt, a very expensive shirt, and asking questions about who made it where it came from. What are you taking part in when you do this? Um, It could be um, regular decisions that you are making. And freedom is this awakening to the uh, awakening to understanding that the place you are arriving at is love. You are free to love, to make decisions that you wouldn't normally make because you are now aware of the responsibility that you bear to love. Now, um, James uh, in, in chapter four seventeen writes: So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. If there's something you know you should be doing and you're just not. You are willfully taking part in the disturbance of God's world, of shalom. You are actively bringing chaos, sin, pain, suffering into this world. You are actively doing this. Um, So, if you were to ask the first century Jews, how would you define sin? Um... They would actually describe it very much like modern-day evangelicals would describe sin. Um, and it would look a lot like this. You've got Moses. You've got these laws. And he's holding them up, right? He's coming down from the mountain. He's got all these laws. And it's the law of God. They're contained in the scriptures. Um, and there's thousands and thousands of commands. And if you were to ask a first-century Jew, how would you define sin? It would be right here, breaking the laws. If you break one of the laws, you have committed a sin. As long as you're not breaking the laws, you are not committing sin. Now, we all know that there's ways to get away with things without actually breaking the law, right? And so now we have this thing called the spirit of the law, right? Like, no, but that's the spirit of the law. Yeah, but I didn't break the law. Yeah, but you broke the spirit of the law. What are you talking about? Like, this is an actual, like, this is how we describe things because we know it's not just the law. There's an idea behind the law. Um, and so most people, if you were to ask them, what is sin? Well, it's, it's breaking the law of God. Um, I would argue that's actually not a complete definition at all. That's actually completely missing the point. And it's missing the point of your freedom that you have been given in the gospel. Because in Matthew chapter 5, you have Jesus, right? I mean, if you go back to Galatians chapter 3, which we talked about several months ago, um, there's this argument where the, the Judaizers in this book who are trying to enslave the Galatian church, and say, well, hey, you need to join our religion and, and obey all these laws. Um, they're pointing to Moses, right? They're pointing to Moses, the guy with the, the, guy with the laws, and they're saying, you need to obey all of these laws. Um, and then Paul gently reminds us of the message of Jesus, who presents himself in the book of Matthew in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus presents himself as this new Moses. 
And what does he do? He stands up on the side of this mountain in front of God's people, the Israelites, right? Um, the descendants of them, the Jewish people. And when he does this, the way Matthew describes it is exactly the way that the Old Testament describes Moses coming down from the mountain with the commandments. And so Jesus stands there. And what does Jesus do? He starts declaring some of the laws. You have heard it said this. You have heard it said this. And everything that he says is one of the laws from Moses. You have heard this. You have heard it said this. You have heard it said this. They're like, yes, we've heard our whole life. This is all we've heard. And then Jesus takes the law and he transcends it. And he does something else. He says, so you have heard, say, you have heard it say this, but I say this. And the transition that he makes goes from law to love. He takes the law and says, if you are obeying the law, you have misunderstood actually what, I'm, what God intended from the beginning. And so Jesus says, you have heard it said, uh, thou shalt not murder. I say to you, if you hate somebody, if you are not loving them, in other words, if, if you don't see the image of God in them, if you don't see their worth, if there's a thought in your mind that you would kill them, um, you have already broken the law. Um, if you, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But basically, you can go your whole life and, and lust after millions and millions of people and commit adultery over and over again in your heart. And Jesus says, no, you cannot. If you're not content with who I have given you to love, with who you have committed to love, if you can't stay there, you have already committed adultery in your heart. If you lust after someone else that you have already committed, you have already cheated on your spouse, and if they knew what was going on in your mind, that is how it would feel, right? So um, what we have here is a great description of freedom, eleutheria. There was, this, there was this understanding of how you're supposed to live. You are now free from that in the sense of we have transcended this. We have transcended the law. Love is now the bottom line. At the end of the journey that we have been on, God's people, it is revealed to us, oh, that's what this is about. And I never fully understood this. You see, the Jewish people, the Israelites, God's people, have always had this understanding that they are what is called a, um, a contrast community. In other words, they are a community of people living different in the world. Um, the word holy, they're a people who are set apart to be holy. The word holy is the word hagios, which, uh, which simply means different. You, you are different. There is all these things that, that other nations, other peoples suffer from. And there's all these things that creep into their lives, relational breakdown, death, loss, destruction, brokenness, enslavement, turmoil, suffering, chaos, pain, all of it. Um, all the things that you look at other countries in the world and the things they're going through, even our country in many various ways, the things that we are going through. And there is this way that we are supposed to live that is supposed to be different, set apart, holy, hagios, different. And so God's people had these questions, well, how do we ensure that we don't end up here? And God's people always viewed the law as what kept them from crossing into the chaos. So the laws are here, and if we obey these laws, then we will be a people. Um, there, was, there was laws, here's how you're going to practice marriage. Here's how you're going to raise your families. Here's how you're going to do this and this. And when you do this, you will prosper, you will grow, you will thrive. You will, there's all these cleanliness laws that are going to keep you healthy. There's all these different ways that you are going to live in this world um, that are going to keep you 
from falling into what everyone else in this world falls into and from suffering from all the things that they suffer from. And this wall that will keep you from falling into this and will keep you a contrast community in this world, it's going to be the law. So just obey the law. And so this is what they did. They obeyed the law. Now, um, this is sort of the great question of humanity. What is the mechanism by which we can know the right decision to make? For the Israelites, it was the law. What do I do here? Well, is there a mechanism by which you can make decisions? Yes, I can open the law book and I can read the book and I can find the law. And so that is how they lived. And now, even post-Jesus, there is a massive amount of Christians who, who don't know how else to make decisions other than open the Bible. What does the Bible say? I better do it. It's a law. And this is how we live. And this is the mechanism we still live by, even though it's, it was created for a specific time in, in God's people thousands of years ago. Um, but I mean, we still do this every single day. We're always coming up with new ways. Humanity is always coming up with new ways to decide what is, what is the best way to bring about the least amount of suffering, the least amount of chaos. How can we create order? How can we um, sort of limit brokenness and, and limit death? And we're always coming up with all these new ways. Um, and so we invent different forms of government, socialism, capitalism, communism. We invent all these different things um, that we say, well, this will cause the least amount of suffering, right? If we live by this... That will be what will keep us, the wall that will separate us from falling into what we've seen elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, it started with tribalism and it's nationalism. And, and so we like to outsource sort of the, the, the blame, the guilt. We like to put it on, well, it's this group of people. We'll put it on them. It's this, I mean, it's this, this is what started World War II, Nazi Germany. This is what it was. All of our problems are caused by this group of people and that group of people. And so we will purge them from our, from our lives. And, and this... You know, um, the problem is that every time we do this, every mechanism that we invent and we come up with causes untold stories of agony and pain, no matter what we do. The, our solution is to try to limit it to the smallest group of people, usually a minority. Um, so, I mean, as you look through history, there are fascinating fascinating conversations that people have had, people high up in government. So there's this one um, during the Manhattan Project where there is... Uh, they were trying to decide how the mechanism by which the president would decide whether or not to use the nuke, the atom bomb. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of very smart people sitting in a room um, discussing all these methods. Well, uh, would it be a button, like a red button on the desk? No, you can like bump a button and like blow up the world. Like the phone rings and you're like, you're drinking coffee. Oh, wrong button. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, would it be like a, like a red phone? Like you'll make a phone call? Well, I mean, I guess anybody could just pick up the phone and say, go, launch it. Um, and, and so they're trying to come up with the best possible way to handle whether or not, like how the decision will be made and who will make the decision, what is the mechanism by which we will make the decision to do this huge, terrible thing to kill a massive amount of people in one fell swoop. And so you can actually go back and read all the policies that they had proposed some of them are fascinating. The most fascinating one that actually gained a vast amount of support, actually um, the podcast Radio Lab did a whole story on it. It's a fascinating story about, um, okay, so the policy was basically, it was submitted like this. Um, there would be codes, um, and the codes would be written down on some kind of microfilm or something, and they would be placed in a capsule that would be put in underneath the heart of a man who would be close to the president, and he'd always just kind of be there. And this man would carry a suitcase, and in this suitcase would be a large knife. 
This is real. They actually came up with this. A large sort of butcher knife. And if the president wanted to make the decision to kill a vast amount of people, it must be such a heavy decision that he first must be willing to kill someone that he knows, to look them in the eye, pull out the knife, and kill them and take the coats. This, you can read about this. This actually was a decision that gained a lot of steam, and they were like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Why? Well, the reason that they wanted this to be a good idea was because they said, this is the biggest decision that mankind could ever make. And it should be the heaviest decision. And then they're like, well, who's going to do this? And there's actually people that are saying, I'll do it. Like, what? You'll do this? Yeah, and you know what I'll do? I'll bring him coffee and tea every day. I'll take him golfing. I'll buy him presents. I will be his best friend. Well, then he'll never do it. Exactly. Right? And so you can read these, these conversations. Ultimately, of course, they decided against it because they were afraid the president would never do it, which was the entire point in the first place of coming up with the policy. The, the mechanisms by, that we try to decide what is, what is the absolute most biggest way that we can make a decision. This has been sort of the quest of all mankind. What, how do we decide morality? How do we decide what is the greatest good? And so Jesus teaches his people very important things. Um, look, at, look at Galatians chapter 5. Paul says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where did, where did Paul get this? Paul was not the, a, a disciple of Christ in the sense that he walked with Jesus for all these years. Um, this is something that Paul would have learned. after. He, so Paul meets Christ in this, in this incredible event on the road to Damascus. Um, and, and he's made blind, and he has to spend some time with other Christians. And we can see when he spends some, he spends some time with these Christians, they're teaching him about Jesus. Um, and he learns some creeds, and he writes some of them in, like, Colossians and First Corinthians. Um, and this is, at some point, someone teaches him the teachings of Christ, um, because this is exactly something that Christ said. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, there's this event where this, this teacher, and we've talked about this a lot, because as it pertains to the book of Galatians, this comes up sort of a lot in here. Um, this passage sort of very much influences what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia. And so this Pharisee comes up to Jesus, this teacher of the law, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, if you were to sum everything up in one, in one law, what would it be? Hidden underneath this is all kinds of cultural ideas. Like there's, it's sort of a question about who, because there's different rabbis that would teach different things. Um, and basically they're asking him, which school of thought do you come from, Shammai or a different one? And so basically Jesus answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something amazing. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So everything that you have read in scriptures, everything the prophets have ever said, every dramatic thing they've ever done, every sacrifice that has been made on an altar, every time uh, someone is called to repent, every law that is written down, every festival, every meal, every act of repentance, every Azazel goat, their sin is proclaimed upon it, it's sent out into the desert. Every single thing that you read in scriptures from beginning to end can be summed up by one phrase. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is how you define the scriptures. 
wrapped up in this, of course, is a big journey to learn how to do this. But basically, what Paul is saying is that mechanism by which we decide what should be done, by which we decide what is sin and what is not sin, is not opening up and saying, well, there's the law, got to do what it says. No, it's, it's you are free. You are rise above this. You, you read it and you say, this law exists. Why would this law exist? What is the message? It's not about murder. It's, it's about hate. It's not about, adult, it's not about, lo- it's not about adultery. It's about um, being fulfilled with the person you have and, and the things that you have. It's not, and so that mechanism is love. That wall that keeps us from descending into chaos and pain and suffering it is love. And so deep down, the decision, the, the mindset behind every decision that you make, is this the most loving thing you can do? Is this the most absolutely loving thing that you can do? This is not about a vow to be good, right? So we have, um, I mean, let's talk about the adultery thing. You picture your wedding day and you make these vows. And it's not the vows that keep your wedding, your, your marriage healthy. I mean, you can make a vow and then commit adultery. So there's these laws that you've committed to. I'm going to obey these laws and you can easily ruin it. And so living by the law now, it's, that's not, I mean, you can, you can sort of go through the motions every single day and your marriage still go downhill, even though oh, I'm doing everything a good husband should be doing. Um, but if you are loving, if everything you're doing is not, instead of being based upon law and vow, if it's based upon love, that will keep things healthy and out of chaos. That will keep things from entering in that should not enter in. If everything that you were doing is centered around loving God, loving your spouse, there's a healthy marriage. Now take that and build that wall out and apply it to every aspect of your life. How you shop, how you employ people, how you interact with people, how you speak to your children, um, how you interact with authority. So this is different. This is vastly different. We must, in the end, if, if there is chaos in your life, if there is something that is not right, if there is a, a disturbance of the shalom that should be there, you must ask yourself, how am I culpable of this? What decision did I make to get to where I am? And you must get to the root of that decision. Was this decision, was it based upon love? If it wasn't based upon love, what other mechanism was it based upon? Was it based upon simply saying, well, it was the most financially beneficial? That is not the same thing as making a decision based on love. Sometimes making the loving decision is the most financially not beneficial thing. You must ask yourself, uh, was it based upon um, self-preservation? That is not love. You must ask yourself, am I deciding, um, did I make the decision because it was the less, lesser of two evils? That is not love. That can be sin. Absolutely. And so you go even farther in Galatians 5, 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So um, he's got this sort of play on words here. When you read it in the Greek, it's, it's very poetic and it's sort of, um, it kind of rhymes. It goes together. So the word bite is the word dakno. Everyone say dakno. Very good. Uh, it means to use teeth, but it's also kind of a double entendre. It means harming one another. You would say, oh, he dakno, you know, he, he bit me, you know, like. It's sort of how we use the, oh, you don't bite the hand that feeds you kind of thing. Um, so wrapped up in this, though, is, is the idea of using teeth. Um, uh, the second word that follows it up is the word datestheo. So he says, dakno, datestheo, 
um, to eat up. So if you use, if you use teeth, you're going to eat somebody up. And then it goes a little farther. And this is the word, so the word consumed is this word analisco, which means used up until there's nothing left. And so if you put all this together, it's witty, it's smart, but it's effective. He says, because if you, if you make a choice that harms somebody, you run the risk of absolutely eating them up. And if you do that, you will both be consumed. Um, in other words, it's, it's sort of how we describe, uh, we, we have a saying that goes, what goes around comes around. It's sort of the same idea. Um, and, and, and we know that this is true, right? Um, if you destroy someone else, you will destroy yourself in the process. Uh, when you gossip, does it not destroy your own reputation and turn you into a gossip? You're setting out to destroy someone else's and you have made yourself what you're making them. Uh, when you point at others and you say, hey, look over there how awful they are, does that not draw attention to you and people to inspect you? Um, when you lust after another and you desire intimacy with someone else, what you are desiring is, is lust um, and sexual gratification and satisfaction, but um, you know that when you take part in this, all it does is rob you of whatever intimacy that you have in your life. And every study that has been done says people who engage in things like um, pornography um, experience 60% less intimacy with their spouse. 60%. And so people oftentimes engage in pornography because they don't feel intimacy and what they're doing is they're desiring it in someone else and they're robbing themselves of ever experiencing it. When you harm someone else, you harm yourself. What you put out comes back. Um, likewise, when you love, people become more loving. People become more lovely and easier to love. So instead of searching the scriptures and making this big list of do's and don'ts and trying to memorize and obey them, Paul says, you don't understand what freedom means. Freedom means ascending to the understanding that all of this is based upon love, that there's this journey you must go on, and the scriptures lay out this journey where we used to think it was this, but now we understand it's this. And it's all summed up in the story of Christ Jesus, who made every decision based upon love, not upon fear of being crucified, not upon not wanting to suffer. Um, He gave of himself entirely and fully. And so we're going to take communion. We do this every single week. If you're a communion server, go ahead and uh, take the elements and spread around the room. And the thing to focus on, I think, today during communion is what is it in your life that is not at shalom, that is not as it should be? And is there any way in which you have been culpable in that? What is it in someone else's life that is not as it should be? In what ways have you been culpable in that? It could be a wide very wide range of things. It could be you could be giving money to someone and supporting a habit that they should not have instead of sort of drawing boundaries and walking with them all the way to the bottom so that you can help pick them up and climb out again. This blows open um, sort of the passive religion. This is active. This is you making a decision and being conscious what I'm doing right now, how, how I'm doing exactly whatever I'm doing. Um, is it the most loving thing that can be done? Or is there a more loving solution? It is being an active participant in the gospel, in the bringing about of shalom in this world. This is how we are called to live, 
in the light of what we understand about Christ. Christianity is a lifelong question that asks this, in the light of the resurrection, what does it mean for my day today? What does it mean for my world today? The resurrection of Christ, what does it mean? It means that I can, I can take part in the fixing of something else and the resurrection of something. I can, I can give up and sacrifice and give myself and allow myself to be poured out so that others can flourish. And so we take communion. This is the ultimate symbol of that. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ spilled for you. Um, please take communion with us. Spend some time in prayer and repentance. Let's make some things right, shall we? Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank you for who you are. You have done for us um, and all the ways that, uh, that you are leading us. Reform our hearts, reform our religion, reform our faith, reform our lives. Give us uh, the freedom that comes from ascending to the understanding and, and the enlightenment of the gospel, what it means for our lives. Thank you. Thank you for the, the peace that we do have. Allow that peace to grow and to spread outwards from our hearts. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.